0: Welcome back to Nurturing Radical Kindness, a podcast where we explore radical kindness as a pathway to achieving social justice. My name is Vandita and my pronouns are she and her.
1: And I'm Sanchi and my pronouns are she, her. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the podcast with us. We have been loving having these conversations here and we're so grateful for your participation and feedback. And also, thanks so much for sharing your reflections and comments with us. We love going through them. And that being said, I am super excited for today's episode because today we are talking about sex, pleasure, and identity. And to start off this conversation, Vandita, um, I think that the identity markers that we occupy, which basically say that we are who we are, determines a lot of things for us, right? Like, if we are allowed to have sex how how we have sex right how many people we have sex with who are these people whether we enjoy it or not and so many other things related to it and uh, i just think these are all decided by who we are right would you agree to that definitely sanchi um, i think that this is something
0: that i very strongly resonated with as i grew up right especially as i like hit puberty and understood and like just found sex um, in my personal life in other spaces as well. I think the idea that our identity can ever be separated from sex desirability or our sexual identity is completely untrue and for me that's been especially um, a very strong focus of how I've explored my sexual relationships or any sort of sexual identification. I think a lot of the root causes of the concerns we see around sex and how people with certain identities are even able to navigate sex and sexuality comes from, and I always come back to this, to very heteronormative patriarchal ideals because under the current structures that we live in, the body of a woman or the body of a queer person is seen as property of men, is seen as property of the state and when you see it from that lens. Um, Ideas of morality, ideas of what is allowed, what is not allowed and how this shifts in terms of how the state or a man sees you in terms of desirability. Um, I'll give you a super small example, virginity is a construct that is expected of certain types of women, of women who look a certain way and who are considered desirable a certain way. On the other hand for women who are not considered desirable right? and this may change depending on which society you're a part of. This could be someone who's dark-skinned, someone like me who's plus-sized um, or just like to call it what it is, right? someone who's fat. I think desirability changes, bases that from a societal length. And now weirdly enough, over here when you talk about virginity, virginity becomes something that is forced on you because who would even want you. So the same construct in both situations is being used to shame and to take away the agency of a certain gender or a certain identity. So I think who we are is definitely the first factor when it comes to enjoying sex or even
1: having sex. What do you think? Yeah, no, that's so true because like for so many people, I think it's, I think it on two spectrums, okay? Uh, For me, it's even so freeing to say the word sex out loud on a public forum like this. But on the other hand, also, I also think that wrong, that we look at sex as the ultimate expression of love, right? And this, not. this approach I think is so allosexist, right? That it just takes the feeling of sexual attraction to be the default and considers it to be the most precious form of love. Whereas, uh, I don't think everybody feels sexual attraction, or not everyone feels it in the same way or at the same degree. What, I, what do you think about that? No, definitely, I think um, when I think about like even our general idea of sex
0: and sexuality, it's so focused on the penetrative aspect of sexuality. Um, all sex is only sex if there is penetration, if a man's penis you know, penetrates a woman's vagina and so much of sex is not about that, both between heterosexual couples but also between this wide range and spectrum of sexuality that our general penetrative understanding of sex completely ignores. And when we define sex and even other social constructs by that one act, we're taking away the experiences of so many people because we're taking away from them the language to say this is the experience I had or to say that your experience is less than someone else's because it does not have this. I think even what you said, right? No one's romantic relationship or friendship or any sort of platonic relationship is less than another relationship. Just because sex is not a part
1: of it and i think uh, platonic relationships if we talk about those i mean so much can be learned it can be so fulfilling right but we never consider those to be full relationships as we would consider romantic relationships to be but you know this one uh tv show called atypical i remember this very beautiful scene from it where uh it's just a jump scene wherein uh, one relationship is uh, those of two friends and one is between uh, two romantic partners and they just show in that jump scene how both relationships are so fulfilling and i don't think we talk about that enough thanks sanchi i think that's so valid and i think that's why
0: talking about sex positivity just becomes so much more important because sex positivity also recognizes that sex is not desirable for everyone it's just not something that everyone wants And it allows us to break free of, you know, we might not think of it, but we're very constrained by our ideas and our um, devotion
1: to sex because so much of our life revolves around that. And more so because we talk about it so little. And that being said, Vandita, I think it's also so important to recognize the privilege that comes uh, to you if your sexuality is the norm in society, right? Uh, maybe it can look like you can easily date people of your same orientation or uh, you don't need awareness campaigns for your sexuality to be recognized you don't need to explain to people what uh, sexual label do you identify with and then go on to explain also what that label means to you so just so much privilege comes with identifying to a certain type of sexuality, right?
0: No, definitely and I think I would add to that to say that not just the type of sexual orientation we might have Um, But a lot of our intersecting identities overlap with that and that's something we've been talking so much um, about at the podcast that who we are and the bodies that we reside in determines so much of our interaction with the world. So our religion, our caste, um, our physical health status, so much of that determines our sexual experiences. For example, AIDS campaigns over the years. instead of focusing just on prevention or trying to provide medication and safety and encourage safe sex practices, have only ended up creating a severe fear of AIDS, which means um, for those persons who are living with an HIV positive health status or for other persons who may be STI positive in different forms, right, Um, there is never a conversation on what sex looks like for them or what safe sex can mean for them and this is just one aspect I think I'm going to touch upon a little bit about how this also means that we fetishize certain bodies. Um, Say in the West, Indian bodies are seen as exotic um, for skin color, for the length of your hair, for the curves of your body. Um, On the other side of it, certain bodies are never seen as desirable, they're only seen as a fetish. For example, um, if you're ever attracted to someone who's fat your automatic default is going to be, oh, maybe that's a fetish I have. Or that's what you're going to be told by other people. Because you've been conditioned to believe that your attraction should be to a certain type of body, which is a general Eurocentric idea of a thin, white, fair person, um, preferably tall. But attraction doesn't work that way. And you can be attracted to different types of bodies across different parameters. You can have so many reasons for finding someone sexually attractive. But rather than accepting, that you just find them attractive. You find it easier to say that that's a fetish I have. Um, And you fetishize a certain type of body because you would never accept that that is desirable to you or that that kind of body can be desirable. So some words of a poem by Rachel Wiley come to mind. Um, She says that she says, I'm fat and her boyfriend says, no, you're beautiful. And she thinks about why she can't be both. And I think that for me has always encapsulated what fetishization of certain types of bodies and marginalization of certain identities and bodies in just all overall general sexual experiences has meant. We don't allow them to
1: exist alongside our ideas of beauty and desirability at all. I completely hear you, Vandita, and picking up from what you said earlier also, and we'll then come back to the fetishization part. But uh, I really think intersection in uh, all our identities, like. There's no escape for intersectionality, right? All our identities to meet with each other all the time. And uh, I just think about how different it is for uh, somebody who has, say, economic capital as a queer person versus for somebody who does not have that. Say, for me as a queer person, if I do have enough money to shift to uh, a geographical location that has progressive laws, I'm able to very easily convert one capital into another to help my sexual identity, right? But that might, that might not be the case for everybody. And I think um, our intersecting identities just really come into play every day in our life, even if, when we don't recognize it. And also about fetishization, I think what you said about, uh, say, Indian bodies or uh, what we call oriental bodies in the West being considered and like going back to what Edward Said, like his concept of orientalism, they are fetishized, right? And I think this happens across identities. Whether you talk about nationality, you talk about race, you talk about ethnicity, even a person's sexuality, why are lesbians fetishized? And what you said of course about body structure and weight, so it's just across identities also, right? Definitely Sanjay. I think
0: those are such incredibly relevant points. And there's so much that we ignore about the person when we start bracketing them into certain types of identities. Even what you mentioned about economic access, I remember, so I'm from Bombay. And I remember as a young person, like just if I ever went for a drive to any place near the seaside or just for a walk, you'll see couples lining up, right? Like you'll see pairs of people um, or just people together and they're making out um, and they're being affectionate towards each other. And as a young person, I was always like, why don't they do this at home? Or why don't they do this in their room? Because I was told one, that sex is inherently an extremely private thing. But second, it took me a long time to realize that even the privilege of being able to have that space at home where you can make out, even with your married partner, right? So I'm not even talking about the multiple layers of identities that wouldn't even have that access is so limited. And I think from then on, I've just been like, my mind's been blown thinking about what about access, what does equity in terms of right to like having sex mean? Does it just mean um, recognition of your sexuality, but does it also mean economic support to be able to exert your sexuality? So many things and I'm so glad that today we have with us Apurupa, Apurupa is the founder of Bibliotherapy and she's this amazing sex educator, extremely inclusive, extremely cool and someone that we learn a lot from. And I'm excited to have her with us to answer a lot of these questions that we've been talking about as well. Welcome, Aparupa. Thank you so much, Vandita.
1: Hi, Aparupa. So glad to have you here for this conversation today. Hi, Sanji.
0: Alright, so we're going to dive right into the first question that we have for you, which is how do we even develop a positive relationship with our understanding of sex? Like for so many years or centuries, it's been couched under a lot of negativity a lot of like stereotypes and stigma how do we then develop this positive relationship and when we do what does a healthy
2: sex life even look like i love that you've used the word relationship right because that's exactly what it is um it takes ongoing work and just like a relationship there will be ups and downs i also want to veer away from this trap of positive and negative because on some days we may be very comfortable with our own sexual identity and with the sexual behaviors of others and on some days we may judge ourselves or someone very harshly and also I feel like saying positive relationship then becomes a dog whistle to say that you are sex negative if you aren't positive in a particular way. Um, So I feel like if you're open to learning, if we are trying to engage with the nuances of pleasure and safety, and and we're trying in whatever way possible to be accepting, that counts as building that relationship. Um, the second part of your question, where uh, you know you talk about healthy sex life, for that we first need to define sex and health, right? What does sex look like to us? Uh, you brought up very interesting points about how uh, sex is not only penetration but maybe for someone it's just penetration. So what does sex look like for me? And also what is health according to me? Because we get our understanding of that from textbooks written by your white, cishet, able-bodied, often neurotypical males, um, and all like controlled studies which happen in random American colleges, suburban colleges, right? Uh, (laughs) I mean, for example, what if a couple chooses uh, the withdrawal method while engaging in the sexual act, for instance, knowing, let, let's say that there is a chance of impregnation and they're, they're aware of this and they're aware of like the STI risk, etc. If that's what they choose and that is healthy for them, then that's a healthy sex life that they have with each other. Uh... Look look at the current situation, we're in the middle of a pandemic, Uh, the COVID crisis is still very real, but a lot of us are choosing to move out, are choosing to engage with people sexually, even casually for that matter, where we may not necessarily know the different people uh, that the, the other party or parties might be engaging with. But for us, that feels like a healthy choice. And for us, that feels like an affirming choice in some way. So, Therefore, you're allowed to call that a healthy sex life. So um, when we really sit with ourselves and understand what health and sex mean to us and and what kind of relationship we would like to have with our own sexuality, our body, um, I I think that's a a great place to uh, start. And these definitions... um, can look very different on different people and they can also be dynamic. They can change as the person discovers more about themselves or just happens upon maybe like listens to your podcast, right? And their mind is blown and they have all this new information. Maybe they change their uh, definition of what it means. So um, yeah, so basically each person gets to choose what healthy sex life looks like for them.
0: Thank you so much for that, Apurupa. I think those were some excellent points. Um, definitely, I think ideas of what sex health and even the relationship with our body and our sexuality can be so different for so many people i find that as long as it's built on mutual respect and consent where each party has adequate information to be able to give informed consent and there is no coercion um we should be able to engage in sex the way we want to thank you for that
1: absolutely and i i loved how you explained that as an ongoing and dynamic process Uh, where like one day we might be feeling very positively towards ourselves and our bodies or the other day it might like be that we do feel some negative emotions so I really love that how you acknowledge that and say that out loud that it is a dynamic process and that it's okay Really, thanks for that. And uh, This brings me to another question that I have in mind. We talk about healthy relationships, right? And in a culture like ours, which uh, prizes virginity so much, why do you think that is? And do you think that there can be a healthy relationship with virginity as well? Um, the answer to why do I think
2: that is, is the holy trifecta of custom, colonialism and capitalism. Um, We are an extremely casteist culture and we are so big on purity and chastity and we often conflate sexuality with morality and and commitments to purity are part of this larger system of patriarchal control and and heteronormativity and and the belief that, like, like Vandita also very rightly said, that people with particular bodies have particular identities and therefore have particular desires. Um, it's also very rooted in establishing uh, paternity right I mean those are the origins of virginity so to say which is why people assigned female at birth are more likely to be policed about it Um, and these ideas are also very colonial in nature where there's a lot of shaming for like quote unquote savage behavior Uh, people are taught that they are not to have sex until marriage so that they may remain pure and then this purity becomes such a key feature of a person's worth um, individually and within a community as well and I mean the commodification of uh, female bodies, AFAP bodies is, is such a long-standing tradition of, of capitalist patriarchy right, uh, if, if your body is an object then therefore virginity is a con- condition. But virginity is obviously a social construct you don't lose anything when you have sex for the first time you don't gain anything when you have sex for the first time it's it's just an experience um, it could be very meaningful to some people and that's very valid um, it could just be meh for some people and that's also valid and and what is uh virginity really uh the presence or absence of the hymen on an afab's body well the new splash, the, the hymen actually is an elastic membrane and uh, it, it covers the mouth of the front hole or the vagina and it can be impacted by several activities which have nothing to do with penetration even if that is our idea of sex it has nothing to it could break through uh, physical activity horse riding cycling some people aren't even born with a hymen some people may have really elastic uh, hymens that don't even break after some kind of penetrative sexual act so um it's such a the very idea itself is so fallacious and and then again like it brings me back to my previous question what is sex, right? Um, so if, if you're saying that sex is only penetration, well, that's very ableist, that's very queerphobic, transphobic, um, and, and that's also very uninformed. That's not uh, all that is there to sex. And uh, that could be all that is there to sex for some people. So, yeah, this idea of, of virginity has, has always had me uh, perplexed. But, I mean, of course, having said that, I also want to uh, take a minute to validate the experiences of people who want to identify as a virgin, or who don't want to identify as a virgin. Really, if you understand that it is a choice, and if if a label feels affirming to us, and if a label makes sense to us, and, and therefore we want to identify with it, and we're not necessarily policing other people based on the value that we attach to a particular label, then then I suppose it's, it's absolutely all right. But uh, inherently, it does not have any value to a person's worth or identity.
0: Thanks, Apurupa. I think even the very fact that virginity is seen as a construct where um, a man sort of penetrates something for someone who is assigned female at birth, I think that in itself is just a demonstration of how patriarchy would manifest physically or in a sexual relationship. And I think everything you shared is so valid. Um, so much of this is just a way to ensure that certain lineage is passed on in terms of our ancestry in terms of ensuring that a certain paternal right is maintained over the child and all of this is very very closely linked to how patriarchy aims to constantly control certain types of bodies so in keeping with what we've been talking about apodipa i think my next question for you is just around this it's how our conversations around sex and sexuality are often very limited to the gender binary and even when there are conversations in spaces beyond the gender binary it's always as a separate conversation it's never something that is mainstreamed into a general sex ed class that you would give a child right and i feel that till the time we don't mainstream these conversations we're doing a great disservice to them so how do you think we can make space for these conversations around the sexual health and pleasure of
2: all gender identities and not just the two that we seem to see the most yeah, Vandita, uh, I think you've actually answered the question by not making them an afterthought and not othering them to start with. Um, we, we always say men, women and non-binary folks or, or the use of the word third gender, for instance. Um, we obviously need to work at a policy level to protect the rights of peoples of people of all genders. Look at the Trans Act, for instance. It's so violent, and, and there is no right to self-determination. And um, I'll, I'll just take a moment here to check my own privilege. I'm very cognizant of the fact that I'm a cis woman. I'm able-bodied. I come from a sovereign location. And I am talking about how I can make space for... Uh, non-binary and gender non-conforming folks and and I, I see the irony in that because uh, we, we talk about passing the mic, we talk about paying people from marginalized gender identities, we speak about learning from them, but we also forget to include them in the, in the conversations which directly impact them. So that infantilizing of people from marginalized identities has to stop. And we also obviously, which is something that you brought up briefly, was that we need to look at intersections. Um, And and Sanchi said this as well, like both gender and social class shape access to information and tools for sexual health and pleasure. So, So we need to be very cognizant of that as well. And even within the binary, we need to expand our ideas of what sexual health and pleasure means. Because we still have a very binary understanding of sexual health and pleasure. So you either have it have sexual health or you don't uh, you're sexually healthy or unhealthy you're experiencing pleasure or you're not like there is not a lot of space for simultaneity um, even within the binary right where uh, we, we have everything at our disposal and even there we are we are so pressed in our understanding of what sexual health and pleasure can look like so that that must expand and like you very rightly said um the conversations have to be mainstreamed. It it cannot be an afterthought. It cannot be something that that you save to the end of the session. Let's say in a sexed class, uh like, like I often see, where you know you you have this whole conversation about how oh reproduction is this, uh, sexual act is this, masturbation is this, porn is this, etc. etc. And at the end of the session, there will be like a gender sensitization kind of segment, and that needs to stop. And um, yeah, th- there has to be just more space for um, affirming conversations around pleasures and health of different kind and uh, yeah we need to pass the mic, we need to invite people into conversations that directly concern them and we also need to, um, and, and, and this is something that I learned at the One Future Fellowship you always need to, if, if you have privilege and you are trying to use your privilege for social good, then you need to check with the people, you need to involve the people uh, in the process and you need to figure what social good looks like for them and and I would extend that answer to
1: sexual health and pleasure as well that's such a wonderful approach Aparupa and I love like all that you brought up and just not uh making people an afterthought just uh calling them in passing the mic I think these are very simple approaches that make so much sense right and we can do that so why not And I think my next question to you is also related to the same. Even though we are talking about sex, and I think I said this before also, that uh, we do sometimes see sex as the ultimate uh, form of pleasure. But uh, not everybody enjoys sex or they may enjoy it only in a specific setting. And we know that there are so many myths around asexuality and under asexuality also we only mostly look at a singular definition of it. So can you tell us a little about what asexuality is, what it can look like for different individuals, and how is it that asexual people might want to be represented in the media, in their relationships, or just what can we do to make more space again? Um, So the
2: textbook definition, the Ghisa Pita definition of asexuality is that uh, they, they are people who experience very little to no sexual attraction, and of course it's an umbrella term. Within which people may experience uh, sexual attraction, like you very rightly said, in certain situations, uh, some people may not experience it at all, etc. So on and so forth. Some people may need some kind of uh, a connection or a precursor to that sexual attraction. All of that, right? But our sexuality is is fluid, and and a person can choose to identify as asexual for a particular period of time. They can just identify as asexual for like the next one are. They can just try out that label if that's something that they want to do. Uh, Some people may be born asexual, but a person's asexuality is just as valid if it's in response to some kind of a trigger. Um, Well, on that note, I would like to give you a trigger warning. I am going to be talking about my own assault experience here. I won't get into any graphic details. Um, But yeah, after I was assaulted, for a period of time, I felt asexual and uh, the resources around asexuality, the validity that I found within the community um, was very meaningful to me. And uh, now I identify as allosexual and I'm allowed to do that. And and it can, it can look so different in different people. My uh, dear friend recently in, introduced me to this term called cupiosexual, uh, which basically means a person may want sexual relationship, but they do not experience sexual attraction. Now, how fascinating is the human sexuality like that, right? Like it—it's it, a summation of so many things and so many different facets of our personality, and this invisibilizing of asexual identities and aphobia. Again, like I will—I would will really trace it back to like patriarchy, right, and and capitalism where we need this normative idea of what family is and we need to create these individual spending units and when, when people don't understand what asexuality means um, and then and, and there is this pressure to kind of perpetuate the human species um, which is to like give birth and like raise children etc., People also uh, look at asexuality from a very negative lens. Uh, There is also so much gatekeeping within the queer community. Uh, I've heard people say that asexual people aren't actually queer people uh, because, okay, they may be cis and they may uh, be attracted to a person of the other gender. Therefore, oh, they're they're not queer. They're not queer. They're not queer enough. Um, also like within the asexual community about how you are allowed to experience your asexuality if you are if you are someone who talks about your sexuality or sex, for instance, you are not asexual enough for some reason. But really, each individual person, like I said with sex, and like I said with sexual health, and like I said with pleasure, is allowed to define what asexuality means to them. Now all these labels exist, and all these different identities kind of exist, these community groups exist, so that we can collectivize, fight for our rights, uh, do research, mm, you know, create access to resources, etc. But if something is not serving you, then you're allowed to discard it. If if something is serving you and you don't necessarily identify as that particular, let's say you are somebody who identifies as allosexual and that's how you like to go about your life, but um, you like to maybe access asexual resources and you like to look at uh, asexual content creators and you like to learn more about asexuality, you're allowed to do that. Um, You can identify as allosexual and you may never experience sexual attraction and, and vice versa for uh, asexuality as well even if you other people think that you are actually experiencing sexual attraction but if, if you say that you're not and if you say that you're asexual then you are asexual, right? Um. so so really if if we start re-allowing space for people to identify as anything that suits them at any point and if we allow people that autonomy um. And th- that is how we need to start thinking about sex and sexual health and pleasure. And, and that, is how we, that is how we will be liberated ourselves.
0: That's such a beautiful way to put it, Abhulupa. I think just centering people and their experiences can be so transformative in, just, like you mentioned, like our collective liberation, sexual and otherwise. Just giving and creating space for that agency can be so meaningful and so powerful. Thank you. I think we're just as guilty um, of relegating this part of the conversation to the end, Um, but we know that this is something we don't generally talk about as much. We do sometimes talk about sexual health, but the pleasure part of it is very missing, especially what pleasure can look like in different ways. There are so many things to explore, so many resources. How do we one make resources around sexual pleasure more accessible? And what do we even mean by sexual pleasure? How do we expand this understanding of the idea of sexual pleasure? for different types of people and do this for everybody so to do this for different people so that if I'm someone who experiences pleasure in a different way, I'm able to find that with people who understand what pleasure means to me.
2: Oh, absolutely, uh, Vandita, and that's such an interesting uh, question. We also dilly-dally around this conversation about pleasure because we don't want to shock people and uh, it doesn't feel the most natural for people to maybe attend a course or sit at a workshop or even in a social gathering to start talking about what makes them come, right? It it doesn't feel natural. So you kind of build to it. And and that's the culmination of the conversation. But I strongly believe that these conversations need to start uh, happening in non-sexual settings. They need to happen in classrooms. They need to happen in theaters. They need to, we need to find like, quote-unquote, teachable moments or cues around us where, let's say, we see an ad or let's say we see a particular scene in a movie and it makes the people watching it together feel a certain way. There has to be a conversation to process those emotions or to process what we're viewing on screen. Vandita, you mentioned how, you know, growing up, you saw these couples uh, make out with each other, you know, on these promenades or at Marine Drive or wherever, outside, right? Like, while you were traveling. Um, and who had that conversation with you right as to what is it that you're seeing why are they for instance that question very pertinent question that you had why are they not doing this at home um are they allowed to do this in a public space like this and um well i remember the time that uh, you know i was i was just like canoodling with my with my then partner and um obviously i was i was young we had no space to go to and and i remember um you know a cop walking up to us and you know demanding money etc basically demanding a bribe right but the overwhelming feeling was that of shame and guilt because i had never nobody had ever had this conversation with me before or or i hadn't Heard, even overheard people talking about this before right we need to start having these conversations in in non-sexual settings and it can't be something that you reserve just for the bedroom or you deserve just to have with your intimate partner or partners um, you also uh, you know asked me about accessibility and again like <laughs> I feel like I keep checking my privilege but well, I am having this conversation in English and up until last year, English was the only language that I could I could facilitate in. So what about, um, you know, the slice of society that does not speak English, it's still a very elitist thing to, to have access to language and to have access to resources and resource persons and the internet for that matter. So what about other people, right? And, and also, like, we need to explore different mediums through which we can impart uh, sex education and also have more conversations around sex and pleasure in general. Um, I, I know of this one organization who made a bunch of music videos around the topic. And I thought, what a wonderful way uh, for people who may not necessarily uh, understand the nuances of something like consent through a conversation, maybe a song and dance can actually help them understand I also pursued a course wherein we were taught, uh, we we taught a bunch of modules uh, using clips from Bollywood and analyzing them. Uh, So I thought that was also a very interesting way because we, we talk about how violent Bollywood is and how violent the film culture is and the stereotypes it perpetuates. So, okay, where are we having those conversations then? And um, another thing is schools. So I I work in a sex ed company and I I work as a facilitator and I noticed that schools will often call us in response to an external trigger, right? Uh, when uh, there is some kind of an abuse case or when there is uh, somebody, uh, th- there's been a bullying incident in their school or when there's there's been a WhatsApp group where certain messages were exchanged. That is when we are called to schools. That's not okay. We, we need to have conversations about sex and pleasure beyond safety and beyond violence and beyond those those concepts where we're trying to protect people, right? We need to build it in infrastructurally. There need to be these year-on-year programs growing up. It needs to start early and it needs to be something that's kind of like womb to tomb, whatever that means. Uh, We need to continue to have these conversations from a very rights-based approach. Um, The right to have a complete and accurate understanding of our body and sex and sexuality well, that's what it is it's a it's a right and and also of course like policy level change needs to be affected right um, and and this is something that I, I remember Sanchi had had brought up in in one of the discussions that we had uh, where where she said that the NEP doesn't even allude to uh, sexuality education or, or any kind of conversation around it. And uh, so, so I feel like it needs to really become a culture where we have these conversations. And th- that's literally what they are. they are. They are conversations where there is space. It's not a lecture. It's not one way. There is space for a person to maybe give information. And there is space for the other person to process that information and have conversations around that information, right? And even challenge that information if need be. Um, so, so I feel like, yeah, there needs to be a culture which will then create more accessibility, and which will then, and, and also like where we explore different languages and mediums, um, so so that more people have access to it, and and they're not dependent on knowing a language or or uh, being a certain kind of learner and adapting to a certain kind of pedagogy to be able to access this information.
0: Thanks for that, Aparipa. I think those are some excellent points. I think just in terms of ensuring greater accessibility and pushing the needle forward but what do we talk about when we talk about sex, do we talk about things beyond protection, do we talk about things beyond our general understanding of health. I think even when it comes to pleasure we are so restricted in thinking about what pleasure looks like and what it could mean and so many of us especially from genders that are oppressed never truly get to learn academically or in a formal setting of any sort what pleasure could mean, it's always a self exploration. And not that a self-exploration is bad. It's just that it's additional effort that someone from an oppressed group is having to put in to be able to learn something that is being provided to others as a like way of life. I
2: think that is also extremely important. Thank you so much for sharing this with us today. Thank you so much, Vandita. Um, I really enjoyed reflecting on some of these things that are so close to my heart. Um, and, and I feel like I've come such a long way from being... Uh, slut shamed and uh, from being ostracized from my friends groups for being promiscuous or for just even talking about sex I mean I was the last person to have engaged with anybody but like just because I was talking about it I was penalized but uh, I feel like I, I love it that I can come on this platform and I can I can talk about these things that are that are meaningful to me and and have those ideas affirmed uh, so thank you so much for this opportunity
1: Thanks so much, Aparupa. I think I learned so much from you here today, as I always do. And I think, uh, like, just going beyond a medical legal uh, understanding of what sexuality is or, or what sexual pleasure can look like, it can serve us so much purpose, right? It can liberate us so much. And I think a wonderful thing that I learned here also today is that. Uh, our journeys with our sexuality are dynamic and it's okay if I like a label I go build it. But if I think it doesn't fit me, I, am, like, I have the right to discard it. So really thanks for those conversations here today Vapurupa. Really learned a lot. I'm just going to add to that to
0: say that we really need to expand our understanding of sex and sexuality beyond protectionism because. So often for certain genders, our bodies are seen and are treated as sites of violence that we lose connectedness with pleasure, um, either by ourselves or through other people. We just forget that pleasure is also something that can exist within us or it is something that we can give to ourselves or that we can seek. And I think that is such a um, detriment to our human experience if sexual pleasure is something that we do
2: want and that we do want to seek. Absolutely, Vandita. We need to move as a collective, we need to move beyond this whole Madonna whore dichotomy where uh you know people of certain genders, especially marginalized genders, are viewed as good and chaste, and you know, these pure Madonnas are bad and promiscuous and seductive whores. So, you know, if a person chooses to have sex and seek pleasure, that they're, they're not good. And and if a person chooses, like in, in the case of an asexual person, to not then they are somehow wrong (laughs) so we can never be enough Um, and and I feel like we need to move past this and we need to heal from this collective trauma.
1: Yeah and I think that's so true and one quote from uh, sex education the tv show comes to mind wherein an asexual person is really confused as to are they broken because they don't feel sexual attraction and I think something that the sex therapist says which is So important is that, uh, how could you be broken? Uh, Sex doesn't make us complete. So if you don't feel sexual attraction, how does it make you incomplete? And I think that's a wonderful thought.
0: Yes, thank you. Um, Thank you for that, Sachin. Thank you, Aparipa, for joining us today. You were great. And it's, as always, such a pleasure speaking with you. And for everyone tuning in, thank you so much. We want to leave you with a really small reflection activity. Take some time out. Spend about 15 minutes in a quiet space and reflect on what are some aspects of your identity that make sex and desirability either more easy or more difficult for you. We hope that this helps you explore and understand the intersectionality
1: of our identity, even with how we approach and just get sex. Thank you for that, Vandita. Looking forward to hearing your reflections also. And if you like this episode, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at OneFutureCollective and at Future underscore India on Twitter and do keep an eye out for future episodes out every first and third monday of the month
0: thank you sanchi you can leave us your questions and comments and any feedback that you might have through voice notes and anchor or in our dms we really look forward to hearing your thoughts
1: until next time then stay with us on our journey towards a radically kinder world